Welcome into the Bears Illustrated Podcast. I'm Garrett Ross, joined beside Stephen Simcox. Simmy, how's it going, man? Good, Garrett. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, ready to talk some some college basketball. I think like Mar- the first weekend of March Madness has to be one of the best weeks of the year. It's just constantly games from Thursday all the way through Sunday night. And uh, yeah, some good Baylor and Big 12 basketball to talk about. Yeah, let, let's start there with Baylor. Uh, you know, this is a team coming in. You're coming off the national championship. You've overcome, you know, a tremendous amount of adversity this season, injuries, everything. And you draw a North Carolina team who is extremely hot. Um, they've made a deep run, obviously, to the ACC championship as the team that ruined Coach K's going away party in Durham. What were your overall takeaways uh, from the matchup between Baylor and uh, North Carolina? Well, I mean, it was a, a fascinating game. I, I really, I feel like Baylor, obviously, like the the way they got back in it after being down 25 in the second half, seemed like, okay, this thing's over, tough way to bow out, didn't play your best basketball game. Uh, but they turned up the pressure defensively. You know, they kept getting big buckets, hitting threes. James Akinjo had that huge and one. And honestly, Garrett, when they got it into overtime, and you could tell, and I know there's been some, video circulating of like Scott Drew. He couldn't even watch that last shot that North Carolina threw up. But you could kind of tell the the way the bench reacted when that game went into OT, it really felt like, okay, this is Baylor's game now. Like they fought all the way back. All the pressure's on UNC now. Like this is a huge choke job if they can't get it done. Um but man, North Carolina, like they just they kept punching back. They found a way to dig deep. I, I hated that like, I don't like to complain about officiating. The thing I'll say about the officiating, I know there were some missed calls. I know, uh, I think Baylor was, you know, it was a close game and there was that out of bounds where it looked like it was off UNC, but they didn't review it. Um, the thing that frustrated me the most was that there were just so many whistles late. Like, it was almost every possession. And since they were in the bone, both teams were in the bonus, you know, it was basically a free throw shooting contest for a while. So that was not fun to watch given how great of a game it was yeah i mean that, um, go ahead yeah go ahead no, no go ahead i was just saying yeah that was one of the frustrating things to me like look i understand that you have the technology right like you have the ability to go and make all the calls right and you want to do that but at the same time we've lost the human element like you don't need to be going and checking the monitor and it's not all on the officials on the court they're obviously getting stuff in their ear as well but at the same time, if you're a player and you're a coach and you start getting a momentum swing in your favor and all of a sudden you have a, a errant whistle that could be taken care of in seconds and it's strung out because they want to go and, and view the monitor, I think it just kind of – it's frustrating um, for everybody involved. And I think it kind of shows the coaching job uh, you know, of, of Drew and, and Hubert Davis to maintain the composure in those moments and keep those guys focused because it was. It was a lot of – you know, just stop an unnecessary drawn out situation. Right. I mean, the flow of the game is completely upended when that happens. So that's tough to watch. I mean, Baylor, I think you're disappointed that you couldn't get out of the round of 32. Um, I think even given the injuries, that's disappointing, but the way they fought back was super encouraging. I feel like the the biggest um, encouragement for BU at this point is that it's pretty obvious there's a great culture and this is a great program. Like this is not just an amazing team two years ago that had an incredible run to a national championship. They have staying power. You know, they have guys that buy in. Um, 
that are tough, that are tough-minded and get the job done. What I wanted to ask you about, though, Garrett, moving forward, um, I mean, I think they're going to be fine. But this roster could turn over pretty significantly. I mean, we'll see what Kendall Brown does. I think there's maybe a chance they could talk him into staying, but it's going to be hard to say no to the NBA. I feel like Jeremy Sochan's probably gone. Matt Meyer is gone, um, in, in my opinion. So there's going to be a lot of production that you're replacing off off this team next year. Yeah, and it's, for me, you know, I understand Meyer's already come out and he said that more than likely he's gone. I, and I agree with you. I think that he hurt himself coming back this year. He knows it. Now he can't afford to come back another season. Uh, when you look at Flo Thamba, I think this is a guy who should and probably will take advantage of that, that extra year of eligibility from COVID and come back as a super senior. I don't see Flo... Uh, making an impact in the NBA at all. I think he's probably uh, one of those guys who can go and become a nice uh, long longevity overseas type player, you know, and I think he could benefit from that. When you look at Sohan and Kendall Brown, I think both of them are extremely talented. I was more impressed down the stretch with Sohan than Brown. I think Brown, he definitely needs to develop more of his offensive game. I think defense, he's pretty good. Uh, but there was times when you needed him to step up and score. And if he had somebody on him that he could take advantage of, it was going to be a night where he was a walking highlight reel. But if you were able to have somebody to stick him and guard him, he struggled to create separation and find open shots. When you look at Sohan, I was really impressed with him being able to get thrown into the fire, essentially, with Jonathan Chamachachua getting injured and having to go bang down low. I think he showed that he's a versatile player. Um, I really like his defensive game. He's long. He's athletic. But And he's tough. I, I think when you look at that game against North Carolina, him and Baycott were going at it back and forth. That game got extremely physical. And I learned a lot about Jeremy Sohan and his mental toughness there. But for me, I think both of those guys should come back and develop their game. Um, they're both – they could go into the NBA and get paid. But at the same time, I don't think that if they did that, they would have longevity in the NBA. I think they would be there for a few years and kind of get washed out. Uh, I don't think either one of them are as good as Macy Oteague or Jared Butler were last year, or even Davion Mitchell. And when you look at those guys, I mean, Butler and, and Teague are still, you know, they're in the developmental system while, you know, Davion's actually getting those reps in the NBA. But he's, I think that those guys could look at them and say, we need to come back and develop and, and take advantage of it. I wish they would do that. I could see them taking the money. And, and another factor here is, with Jerome Tang possibly out the door, how does that impact the roster as well? Yeah, no, that's a good point. I hadn't really thought of the Tang factor because he is such a big force in recruiting and just in the overall, you know, um, culture of the team. But, yeah, I think Kendall Brown could definitely use another year to develop because um, he still is pretty raw in a lot of ways. It's just going to be hard to say no to, you know, the NBA that's calling. I think Sochan is really just made for pro basketball with his size and his ability to do different things. But, um, I mean, they'll have Keontae George coming in. You got Cryer, Flagler, you know, Langston loves a, a kid that hadn't really hit the floor yet. So they have a lot of firepower. I'm not worried about them. I think it's just going to be a different team next year in a lot of ways. And, uh, yeah, the Jerome Tang um, angle is interesting. And I'm curious to see if that does end up going through with Kansas State, which it looks like it, it will, and congratulations to him, sort of where they go with that coaching staff, Garrett. And also – does he like does he poach one or two guys on the staff currently and take them up to Manhattan because we see that that possibility as well? Yeah, I would definitely keep a guy an eye on you know like uh, Alvin Brooks. What does he want to do? I think Alvin Brooks is also probably you know next in line you know to to get a, a head job after Coach Tang. And it's really impressive when you think about it and you look back 
we're starting to see the Scott Drew coaching tree unfold. And it's really impressive. I mean, you have Grant McCastle who's doing, you know, big things. Uh, even Drew's brother, I know he wasn't on the staff, but he's done good things as well. Uh, but it's really cool to see what he's been able to do. And, you know, Tang's been with him this entire time. So how does Drew adjust to not having Tang there to bounce things off of? I think that's going to be really important as well to sustain what they've built here at Baylor. It will be. And, I mean, um, he just has such a great rapport with those players too. It's going to be an adjustment. But, yeah, tough loss. And, uh, man, if, if you told me in the middle of the year uh, Baylor wouldn't make it to the Sweet 16, I would have been pretty shocked by that. But that's uh, that's one of the reasons we love the tournament because you just never know how it's going to shake out. Yeah, no doubt. And let's let's look ahead here at some of the Big 12 teams who are still alive. Obviously, TCU took a, a tough loss against Arizona. Iowa State's still in the mix. Kansas is still in the mix as well. We're going to dive into that next here on the Bears Illustrated Podcast. Back into the Bears Illustrated podcast. I'm Garrett Ross. He's Stephen Simcox. And Simi, uh, you know, tough loss for your Horn Frogs against Arizona. Uh, like you mentioned prior in the segment, Baylor bows out in the Sweet 16. What are your overall thoughts of these Big 12 teams and where they've what the conference has done as a whole as we've made it through the round of 32 here in March Madness? I think they've handled themselves well. I mean, I feel like the ACC has really surprised a lot of people, right? You know, we've, we've seen Duke hold serve. North Carolina had the upset. Uh, Miami ends up getting to the Sweet 16. They've done some nice things. And it's disappointing that Baylor couldn't make it into the second weekend. Um, but Kansas took care of their business. Texas Tech, it was a little hairy against Notre Dame, but they got it done. Uh, you know, Iowa State's a really funny team. Like, I, I've watched probably five or six of their games this year, Garrett. They're a tough watch. Like, they're not a great offensive team, but they defend the heck out of people. And they can be a matchup problem at times because of the way they sort of slow down the game, play defense, and they're able to get it done against Wisconsin. Um, but, yeah, I think overall everybody handled themselves well. Texas also went down to Purdue. Um, but TCU showed a lot of fight against Arizona. That was a game they could have won. They didn't end up getting it done. I think you saw the depth of the conference going 6-0, and in the first round, um, and really nobody had much trouble with their first-round opponent. Uh, and then three teams moving on to the Sweet 16, that's huge. Uh, moving forward, Garrett, what do you kind of see? Because I, I know KU, they've got a pretty good draw here. I mean, they're in a, a decent situation um, in their side of the bracket. Uh, and then Texas Tech, it's going to be tough because they, they'll have to, you know, eventually maybe beat Gonzaga. Um, they have a tough matchup coming up, but yeah, I, I feel like Kansas is set up pretty well. What are you thinking about the teams that are uh, still left in the big 12? I think when you look uh, Kansas definitely has the easiest path, especially with Iowa going out in the first round. I think that kind of cleared things up. I was nervous about uh, KU. Well, no, I, w I really wasn't nervous about KU against Creighton, but that actually turned out to be a really good game. I, I thought with Creighton's big man getting hurt in overtime of that first round, that that mm -hmm. would be something that Kansas could exploit. Um, with McCormick and, and Lightfoot. But, you know, hats off to Creighton for coming out and pushing the Jayhawks. Um, as far as Iowa State, too, th that's a tricky team. Um, when you – that first-round matchup with LSU, I had Iowa State over them. I thought LSU was in disarray, and Iowa State could, you know, cruise past them. I did have Wisconsin beating um, Iowa State, though. Uh, so that was, to me, 
the the one of the most imp- uh, impressive wins was what uh, Iowa State was able to do against the Badgers, and that game was in Milwaukee, wasn't it as well? Yeah, it was, um, and I, I think you know in some ways Wisconsin was a good matchup for them because they're also a team that plays a lot of defense, slows it down. But still, the turnaround, they won two games last year. So, like, this is yeah. an incredible turnaround from the Cyclones. Uh, but, yeah, there'll be some fun matchups like Texas Tech against Duke. You know, we've seen some vulnerability from Duke this year. Um, Tech obviously has just sort of carried over that culture that Chris Beard and Mark Adams established under Mark Adams. And they have some athletes that can score as well. Um, but Kansas against Providence, like, I, I like their chances there. And then they'll get the winner of Iowa State and Miami, which they have a ton of familiarity with Iowa State. Uh, and then UM is a, a team that's a 10 seed. They're pretty hot right now. But um, and, and all Big 12 Elite Eight matchup will be a lot of fun. The problem for Iowa State is Miami can score. Like They can score yeah. the basketball. And so they're going to need, like, Brockington's going to have to go off. They're going to need um, some points in that in that game to get it done. But I, I feel like, all year long, the Big 12 has kind of flexed their muscle as the best conference, the deepest conference college basketball, and I feel like that held serve. Maybe, like, the top of the league, you know, the top of the Big 10, the top of the ACC, the top of the Big 12, it's all pretty even. But when you're talking about the seventh, like, team in the league, Iowa State, here's a crazy stat for you. Iowa State was 7-11 and and Big 12 play. They were 15-0 against everybody else this year. Oh, wow. So. You know, like when you're talking about the seventh place team in the league making the Sweet 16, you know, the fifth place team in the league in TCU going toe to toe with a one seed on the West Coast against Arizona. Um, I, I feel like you just saw that it is night in and night out, just an absolute meat grinder of a conference. No, it really is. And we kind of touched on Texas there. When you look at the Longhorns and their year one of Chris Beard, uh, what were your overall impressions? And I know as far as when, once they got into the tournament, I thought that Virginia Tech would beat them. I, you know, Virginia Tech was you know the hottest team, one of the hottest teams entering the tournament with what they were able to put together in the ACC tournament. Uh, you know, and that matchup last night with Purdue, I, that was a Purdue's a tricky team when you have those two bigs that you can rotate in and out like that. I think uh, um, you know one is is more efficient on the offensive end, one's more efficient on the defensive end, so it makes them tricky cuz you get used to, you know, how one style of play and they switch it up on you. But I think Texas did a really good job of hanging with them, but Purdue just seemed like they were on a mission. You know, they were upset by the Horns last year, and I don't think they wanted to do that again, but what were your overall impressions of the Longhorns uh, this year under Chris Beard? Well, they got out of the first round, which, I mean, I know that sounds kind of funny to say, but it's been, you know, they hadn't done that since 2014, so I think that's a step forward. Um, It's pretty obvious that they took on his personality of toughness and, you know, just playing defense, rebounding. Those are the two big keys for Chris Beard's team. Need better guard play. Need guards that can score, which I'm sure he'll address that in recruiting. Um, The thing I want to see, though, Garrett, is at Texas Tech, he took that team to a national title game and really like he was set for life. I mean, he was the guy, he was the dude expectations there. Um, even though they had gone up significantly since he took the job, I think he could have can, if he just consistently got Texas tech in the tournament and won a few games in March, people would be happy. He got brought to Texas because he was supposed to make that program an elite program. And nobody necessarily expected him to do it in year one, but just getting out of the first round 
is not going to, you know, that's not why they paid him big money to come to Austin. So how does he address some of those issues on offense? How does he make a team that's more consistent and build a program that can be at the top, you know, tier of the Big 12 year in and year out? That's going to be the challenge for Chris Beard now. I think one of the, one of the the most important things he did though in this first year was come in and kind of change the culture, right? Like I think Texas fans were just kind of sick of Shaka Smart and the the lackluster performances they were putting together. And Chris Beard come in and he brought the crowd, he brought the energy back to the Farrell Center or to the Frank Irwin Center. Um, that will, to me is something that we haven't seen in quite a while. Now I'm interested to see can you keep that up uh, and then how. They transition once they do make the move into the SEC. I think they'll be fine over there from that aspect. But another team that we're looking at that's going to be coming in is Houston. Uh, they're obviously not a Big 12 team right now. There are going to be one in the future. Kelvin Sampson has something brewing down there in H-Town. What are your thoughts on the Cougars and their what they can do transitioning uh, to the Big 12 once that finally happens? Yeah, I mean, they're just tough. They're physical, man. Like, they – they have a pretty uh, good identity of just being a team that's going to get you in a street fight. And I'm curious to see how Arizona handles that because you could tell um, they had the size advantage over TCU, but I think some of the physicality that the Frogs brought to the game bothered them. So that's going to be a big problem against Houston because that's what they do. But Kelvin Sampson's done a great job. I think uh, the ceiling for them is only going to go up with the resources that will be available to them in the Big 12. And then, like, you know this, Garrett, as somebody that covers recruiting, um, Teams in the Big 12 have been trying to keep Houston out for a long time oh, yeah. because they don't want to give up that corner of the state. Like, they realize that even though it's more of a commuter school, even though, you know, it's been a while since there's been a real consistent history there, like, if they're in a Power 5 conference, they can sell to all those Houston kids, stay home, come play for the Cougs. Like, you're going to play Big 12 basketball, you're going to play Big 12 football, whatever. So... I think that's going to be a really big advantage for Houston coming into the league. And my goodness, I mean, you had Houston, Cincinnati has a great tradition as well. BYU and UCF, I think are down a little bit right now, but um, it's going to be some fun basketball being played in, in this conference for sure. Uh, I, I like the addition of the Cougs. And I think, um, I mean, you know, if they, if they find a way to upset Arizona, this weekend, then they have the inside track to the Final Four and coming out of that region. That would be two straight appearances in the Final Four. That's a pretty impressive job uh, by that squad. Oh, no doubt. It really is. I'm excited to see what all those teams could bring. I think it's going to be a lot of fun in this new look Big 12. Uh, you know, but it's something that, you know, it's just a matter of time before it unfolds. And from the hardwood, it might be March Madness, man, but we are right around the corner from spring football. Everything's about to get underway. We've had a lot of coaching movement. Um, in the off season, and we're going to dive into that next in segment three here. You're listening to the Bears Illustrated podcast. Welcome back into the Bears Illustrated podcast. I'm Garrett Ross. He's Steven Simcox. Simi, football is right around the corner, man. And, you know, it was a big year last year for the Big 12, uh, obviously with what Baylor was able to do. Uh, winning the Big 12 championship. Oklahoma State looks really good. And those are going to be two of your new faces once we get into this new look, Big 12. But your Horn Frogs, you know, they had a, a interesting season. 
You get rid of Gary Patterson. You bring in Sonny Dykes. Uh, you immediately have a coaching change at the running back position, and that's also going to impact your recruiting as well. What are your thoughts, overall thoughts on the transition there at TCU from Patterson to Dykes and company? Well, I was okay with the hire. I mean, I think it made a lot of sense. Sonny wanted the job. Um, it's a job that he apparently had his eye on for a while. He did a nice job at SMU. And, I mean, the thing about Sonny Dykes is he's been able to score points wherever he's gone, right? Like, I don't think the offenses will be an issue. I feel like he'll be able to get that turned around pretty quickly. Did lose some of the uh, members of his coaching staff before the season even started. As you laid out there, and the most important one being Rashad Samples, the running back coach, who's also a lead recruiter. Um, that concerns me because I think one, the main reason I was excited about Sonny Dykes, honestly, was because he seemed to have a really good ability to build a staff, get young assistant coaches who related well with players, um, and then you, you already sort of lose your main guy before the season starts. But I think it's intriguing. I was thinking about this the other day. Um, now, they, they wanted to go with an offensive-minded guy. Jeremiah Donati, the athletic director, said that in a press conference, and, and that's who Sonny Dykes is. I think it'll take some time to get this defense up to speed, but it's just, it's intriguing because you look at the way the big 12 has changed over the past five or six years. Obviously the, the two, uh, you know, best teams coming off last season, Dave Aranda and Baylor, tough minded defensive team, physical runs the football. Um, Oklahoma state sort of transitioned into that team as well. Right. Like they have become a team that's more defensive first, um, trying to beat you with their physicality. Oklahoma goes and gets Brett Venables, defensive coordinator at Clemson for a long time. Um, so the league has really gone from like high flying offenses to more of pro style, um, take care of the football, be efficient, play good defense. So TCU's court sort of going the other way with their head coach. Um, but I think it'll work. I feel like he's going to have a, a chance to turn this around in a hurry. There's some talent there. I, I just feel like after 20-plus years, it got kind of bogged down at the end of the Gary Patterson era. Um, so we'll see when they hit the field. But I, I'm okay with the hire. I like it. Um, it wasn't the biggest name out there, but I feel like it's a good fit. Yeah, and you mentioned Oklahoma and Venerables there, and they kind of, they've kind they done the complete opposite. You know, they for, for the, the past few years where Oklahoma's really struggled has been on the defensive end, and so now they're going to bring in that defensive-minded coach but you also are going to have to replace your quarterbacks. You have Caleb Williams that's out at USC. Spencer Rattler, I think, is at South Carolina. He had the transfer portal. How do you see Venerables putting his identity on this team, and how important is it going to be for him to find that right guy? And what do you think Oklahoma is going to look like now with this complete transformation of their program? That was a great question. I mean, I'm not totally sold on Dylan Gabriel. I know he's a talented um, QB, and he was originally at UCLA, I believe. Or he was at UCF, UCLA, and then came over to Oklahoma. Um, I, I feel like they're going to run the football more, Garrett. I think they're going to be more defensive-minded. Brent Venables is a, is a great, was a great defensive coordinator. Um, and OU's got plenty of talent. I think it'll be a good uh, situation long-term. I think you can build something there. But I could see a, a rocky year or two just trying to, get the type of guys he wants in there, um, trying to get everybody to buy into a new system, a new identity. I could see that being a struggle. Uh, but, yeah, overall, I think OU hit it out of the park after losing Lincoln Riley. Um, I feel like Lincoln's got a good situation, too, at USC. Just the Pac-12's kind of a mess. 
but uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm interested in the Brett Venables hire. I think it's just going to take some time for it to really come full circle for them. And you mentioned Riley there, and you know he was him. I would say Brian Kelly going from Notre Dame to LSU were probably two of the more notable uh, moves in the off season. Which one, when you look at those two guys, do you think is going to have the the biggest impact on their program? And which one do you think is going to have the most success? Like who ended up in the better situation, uh, in your opinion, when you look at um, Lincoln Riley and Brian Kelly? So I think it's Lincoln Riley. And, I mean, I think LSU is the better job. Like I feel like Brian Kelly is going to have plenty of resources at his disposal. Um, and I feel Brian Kelly is a good coach. You know, Notre Dame. We can make all the jokes we want about them not, you know, holding serve when they make the playoffs. That's legit. But he also got that team to a place where they were either going undefeated or losing a game or two in the regular season. And that hasn't happened in Notre Dame for a while, even though they basically make up their own schedule each year. And, and you know, there's some advantages that happen there. Um, but the Pac-12, I just – I don't – you know, we'll see what Dan Lanning does at Oregon – Chip Kelly at UCLA, I think UCLA is better, but they haven't really um, made a huge leap yet. The Arizona schools are down. Now, Utah's good. Utah's consistently a good team. Kyle Whittingham's done a great job there. But being in Southern California, um, being at a school that wants to be really good at football, I think Lincoln Riley can, uh, can get that program turned around. And I'll also say, I don't know, OU fans have gone through like the – five stages of grief this offseason <laughs> yeah, they, they really like they're really upset about this but it's so weird Garrett because it's like they have all these opinions at the same time one they think Riley his teams are too soft um and that they're gonna be better under Brett Venables but they're also still so mad at him for leaving and for lying to them and you know for moving on like Lincoln Riley's a good coach now um do his team's lack of physicality I think you're gonna need to Win a national title? Yeah, I could, I could, I feel like that's a fair criticism. Um, but I think at USC, he could get that team turned around quickly and get them as the top of the Pac-12. I just think it's going to be tougher for Brian Kelly because, like everybody else in the SEC West, I mean, golly, Alabama's just sitting right there and they're continuing to be great. Um, on the other side of the conference, like Georgia's built a monster now. A&M has really dove straight into name image and likeness and they're money just talks like, hey we're opening up the checkbook baby like this is all we care about just give us all the five stars we can we can handle uh auburn and auburn's always auburn old miss is a, a fun team under lane kiffin it's just difficult like, it's just be difficult for them to win that division and win that conference year in and year out it really is you know and i think that that's the the oklahoma move on the horizon to the SEC, to me, is something that Lincoln Riley wanted absolutely no part of. You know, and, and look, I don't blame him one bit for going to Southern California. I would much rather live in Southern California and Oklahoma. That's just my opinion. I mean, look at the house he got. I mean, it's right yeah, on the you ocean. And everybody else. <laughs> it's glorious, dude. And then you also have Caleb Williams come with you. And look, Riley has shown he's had success recruiting the California area. He's had success. You got Bishop Gorman right there. Uh, you know, that you can just go right over the state line and recruit as well. I love the fit for USC. I think they've been waiting for somebody like Lincoln Riley to come out there. His personality fits it. You know, I think it's a tremendous hire. As far as Brian Kelly goes, I do not like the the recruiting videos. It's very <laughs> awkward. 
Um, he's a great football coach, but at the same time, dude, there, there's more to it. You know, and I just, I hope he can put it together. I just don't know that I'm confident in what he can do at LSU. Yeah, I don't know why he's, like, trying to be a swag daddy. I don't get that. Because, yeah. you know, Brian Kelly, like, your whole deal is you're a good football coach. Like, right. You don't have to be anything more than that. But whatever. If him dancing and, you know, pretending to, like, shoot guns in videos <laughs> helps, him, helps him get some kids from LSU, to LSU, then I guess so be it. But I, I don't know why he's leaning into that so hard. Um, I agree with you. It's kind of goofy. But, yeah, I think he's a, he's a good football coach. Um, I just – it's going to be so different. Like, Edo let those guys be themselves mm-hmm. because he was himself. And I know Brian Kelly's acting like a fun stepdad right now, but I think once practice starts, Garrett, like, he's going to really start saying, okay, we got to be, you know, tough-minded. We have to be um, – we have to draw the line. We have to be a team that is just, like – really buttoned down and professional and that doesn't really mix with LSU to me. I mean, when I think of LSU, I think of teams that are kind of crazy, kind of wild sort of out there, have a lot of swag, um, have a lot of confidence. And that's not, that's not what I see from Brian Kelly, but maybe, maybe he's changing. Like maybe all this money he's getting is making him change who he is. I don't know. I hope so, man. We'll see how that plays out. That's all the time we got for today. Steven, tell everybody where they can find you on social media. Yeah, I'm at Simcox Steven on Twitter. So follow me there um, if you can stand all my, my silly jokes. And I appreciate you guys listening today. I appreciate you having me on, Garrett. Thank you. Absolutely. That's Steven Simcox. That's all the time we have today. Uh, come and check out the Bears Illustrated podcast anywhere you get your podcast. Uh, also check us out, bearsillustrated.com. We have wall-to-wall coverage for everything Baylor Athletics coming up and as well. And you can find me on Twitter at underscore Garrett Ross. That's all the time we have today. We appreciate you listening, and we'll catch up with you soon. This has been the Bears Illustrated Podcast.